So as we take just a few moments today to kind of examine Jesus' heart for the church and his high priestly prayer, I, I want to do it in this way. I just want to answer three questions. Uh, I want to raise those questions and answer them from the text about what this idea of Christian unity really looks like. And so what is Christian unity? Uh, how, why is it important? And what does it look like played out in the practical body of Christ? And so the first question is simply this. What is Christian unity? And so when we talk about uh, Christian unity, the Bible basically teaches two things about our shared life in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul says that we're to be diligent, listen to this, diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, notice what he says there. He's not saying that you and I have to work to produce this kind of unity. He said the work comes in not producing unity. The work comes in pre preserving the unity that we have through our common shared life in Jesus Christ. And so it's not that we've got to produce it. It's that we have to work hard to maintain it. Now, why is it so hard to maintain it? Let me let you in a little secret this morning while we're all in one room together. As Baptists, we're some cantankerous people. Amen? And if you've never been in a, in a church meeting, a Baptist church meeting, where it's gotten a little heated or there's been some conflict or something like that, let me welcome you to your first Sunday in a Baptist church, all right? And so what he's saying is, hey, there's all kinds of opinions, there's all kinds of preferences, and so we share a common salvation life in Jesus Christ, which produces a positional unity, that we're one in the body of Christ. He said, but also, there takes some effort to maintain what the Spirit has Produced. So in Ephesians 4.3, he talks about preserving the unity, that it's already there positionally. But then listen to what he says in verse 13, chapter 4. After talking about the ministry of pastors and preachers who equip the saints for the work of ministry in verses 11 and 12, Paul says this, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. And so what he's saying is there is a positional unity. We share a common salvation in Christ. We're dwelt with the same Holy Spirit living inside of us, but even that that's true positionally, there has to be some effort practically on our parts to preserve the unity in Jesus Christ and in our shared life. And we see that same truth, positional unity, and then a practical outworking to preserve that. Verses 21 and 22, uh, Jesus prays that those who believe in him would be one, even as he and the Father are one. He's praying here to the Father and saying, hey, just like you and I are one, I'm praying that the followers of Jesus Christ would realize that they too are one. They've experienced a common salvation in Jesus Christ. So he references that in verses 21 and 22. But then in verse 23, he talks about believers being perfected in unity. And so what's he talking about? He said there's some effort. There's some growth. Yes, positionally, you and I are righteous in Jesus Christ. That's justification. But he said it takes a practical outworking called sanctification, where we're made more like Jesus Christ. And so he's describing the same thing. So our shared life in Christ is a positional reality, but it's also a practical process as we grow. Now, if you're like me, one of the things that's super helpful to me when I'm trying to grasp something is defining what it's not. So if I can understand, hey, here's some things that it's not, then I have a clear picture of understanding exactly what it is. So let me tell you two things that are that are not Christian unity, that often get passed off or promoted as unifiers or Christian unity. The first one is this. Christian unity is not uniformity. If you've ever been involved in a, in a legalistic church, the idea is that we should be so unified because we 
have all these same ideas about this is the dress code that everybody should adhere to. These are the music choices. These are the uh, musical choices that just so happen to honor God. They, they just so happen to be the music that I enjoy as well. That's odd, right? Everybody agrees the same uh, preferences. And, and, and let's just be honest. Everybody agrees that these are the things we don't do, right? We don't drink, smoke, or chew, and we don't date the girls who do. And so if everybody adheres to all these rules, right, these extra biblical rules, then we'll have unity in our church. There's complete agreement. There's uniformity in our church. But if you've ever been in a church context like that, let me just let you know a little secret. Those are some of those contentious uh, churches you'll ever be a part of. You know why? Because they spend a tremendous amount of energy creating the list, maintaining the list, and then enforcing and policing and letting other people know you're not following the list of all these extra biblical things that keep us unified. So Christian unity is not about uniformity. Uh, you can like different kinds of music. And listen, God, God's honored by all of them. There's no such thing as Christian music. Did you know that? There's either Christian lyrics or non-Christian lyrics. The only kind of music that dishonors God is bluegrass. Can I get a witness? Amen. Look, <laughs> I got some boos. I don't know who you are, but you're just in the first church I've been booed out of, all right? I just want to share that. It doesn't bother me at all. Let me tell you the other thing, though. is Christian unity is not about unanimity on every single doctrine. When we think about issues of doctrine and theology, that we will be unified because of that. Listen, let me tell you a little secret. There's no way that everybody agrees on every single issue of doctrine in this room, despite being members of one church. Some of you see things a little differently, doctrine, than I do. Listen, that's totally fine. You're free to be wrong. Amen? <laughs> and we've taught this before. Let me remind you real quick. When we think about doctrinal unity, there's basically three levels of doctrine. One is essential truths. That if you don't hold to these things, there's not agreement on these things. It's not that, well, you and I disagree on minor issues, or you, you go to this church, I go to that church. Listen, if you disagree on these things, you're not even a Christian. Things like the virgin birth and the deity of Christ and the bodily resurrection, those kinds of issues, salvation by grace through faith. So there's that first tier of essential truths that define historic Orthodox Christianity. That you remove any of those, you no longer have Christianity. Then there's a second tier where there's important but non-saving truth. This affects how we live as Christians, but, but genuine, committed followers of Christ differ on these issues. Uh, we can look at things like the timing of the Lord's return, views or modes of baptism, charismatic gifts, the roles of men and women uh, in the church, church governance, eternal security. You get the idea. Th these are the areas where there's distinction between different denominations of churches, and that's not always a bad thing. But then there's this third area that's things that are essential uh, or interesting, but, but not quite essential. Now, let me just second for a moment. These are the things that they're not essential. They're, they're, they're trivial doctrines like who do you think the sons of God are in Genesis chapter 6? Is it the kings of the earth? Is it giants in the land? Is it all those things? Listen, I don't know. Right? But I know it's not worth fighting over. These are things that are, that are in the realm of preferences. Hey, here's a good, clear, general truth, and, and I think my preference is to to play it out in this application, but the Bible's not clear on that. And even though these are things that are interesting but, but not essential, my experience has been this. These are the things that most Christians have contention over, and they're the lowest tier of theolo theological issues on here. And so, matter of fact, Paul instructs Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, not to pay attention to myths or endless 
genealogies which only give rise to speculation. He said, hey, there's some things, there's some mystery about God. Romans 11 speaks to that. Right? Isaiah talks about his ways are higher than our ways. And so you can spend a tremendous amount of time debating things that aren't even really that important to debate. And so it's not unanimity on every single doctrinal issue. It's not uniformity that we all agree this is what it looks like. Christian unity is based on our common salvation in Jesus Christ. It's the fact that you and I can be radically different, but yet we've experienced a common salvation. And the common thing about us, even though we're radically different, is that at some point in time, we both came to the common realization that we are desperately wicked and only the grace of God and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary could rescue me from my sins and myself and I threw myself at the feet of his mercy. That's what's common about all of us in this room. And so there's a unity based on our common salvation. Jesus is not praying here for the entire world in John chapter 17 verse 9. He's praying specifically for Christians and his appeal for the unity is based on a common salvation. He compares that to, to verse 21, but the, the unit exists between him and the Father. The Bible says when we're born again, become children of God, then, then we too share in that divine nature. Now, when was Jesus' prayer answered that we will be one as he and the Father one? Ultimately, at the day of Pentecost. And so when the Holy Spirit came and indwelt people at that point in time, that it took all these people from all these different backgrounds and it unified them one on the day of Pentecost, but that Truth is still being fulfilled every single time a person receives Jesus Christ. Listen to 1 Corinthians 12. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. And so we're unified together, a shared life in Christ through a common salvation. Now, here's the second question. Why is Christian unity so important? Here's why. Disunity discredits the credibility of our witness. Jesus mentioned this twice in John chapter 17. He says, uh, he prays that we all may be one. Listen, so that, cause and effect, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. In other words, here's what he's saying. If there's disunity in the church, it's going to cause doubts that Jesus himself was the one intended Messiah. He's saying one of the things, one of the reasons people are going to be convinced that I've been sent by the Father is the supernatural, uncommon unity in the church. He says it again in verse 23. Listen to what he says. So that the world may know that you sent me. Now, as Christians, we talk about living distinct and living different from the world. Here's what I'm convinced. When that only centers on the externals, then what happens is we're not distinct. We're just weird. Amen? But the reality is, I want you to hear me this morning. I'm convinced that in this season and moment of cultural disunity and division, one of the most distinctive ways we can represent Christ well is to display a supernatural unity across racial and political and cultural and socioeconomic boundaries. Praise God. But guess what the text says? you got to work to preserve that. Let me give you the Cunningham paraphrase. It ain't easy. You know why? Because I'm selfish. And my wicked heart wants what I want. So this requires a self-sacrificing love and a self-deflecting humility. Which leads us to the third question, which is this. How is Christian unity expressed? So we know what it is. It's our shared life and shared salvation in Christ. We know the danger of not preserving it. It discredits our witness to the world. It's what Jesus said. So what does it look like or how is it expressed 
practice. How do people who normally worship in different locations with different languages from a broad spectrum of ethnicities and political viewpoints find unity? How, how does that work? Listen, look around the room today. You're going to find young people and less young people. Amen? You're going to find people who are white and brown and black and male and female and English speakers and Spanish speakers. You're going to find some people that are handsome and others not as much. Amen? You're going to find some people in the room who love Skyline and others who aren't going to heaven. Can I get a witness? (laughs) Only time some of you have clapped in church your whole life for Skyline. Help us, Jesus. All right? So how does this work? And then we're done. We'll come to the Lord's table. How does this work? Three things. Number one, by our common love for each other. How does this Christian unity play out? By our common love for each other. First John chapter 4, we just talked a series on love. Could not be more clear. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so the world looks around and says, man, you, you've got different cultural backgrounds. You speak different languages. You've got different political beliefs. You've got you know, different age gaps and generational gaps. And so how in the world are you unified with all that characteristics that aren't the same it's because we love each other there's a common love for each other the second way is there's a common purpose the bible talks about different gifts different callings god's equipped us to do different things in the body of christ but here's what's in all that diversity of gifts the bible talks about in four places here's a common motivation to use those gifts is to bring glory to jesus christ And so there's a common love for each other, even though we're radically different. There's a common motive to glorify God. And and here's the third thing, because all these things are true about the universal body of Christ. But this last one is what's unique to one church in multiple locations. It's this. It's we covenant together for a common mission. Paul said this to the Philippian church in Philippians 1. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or remain absent... I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Listen to this. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. So so what does that look like? How are we one church in multiple occasions? We're striving together to reach this region for Jesus Christ and multiple gospel outposts in the orchard. That we're all lending our efforts and our resources to gather and grow and give and go and shared teaching and shared strategy and a shared playbook with one common mission coming together to see this region and our part of the orchard to come to faith in Jesus Christ and the name of Jesus would be exalted and people's lives would be transformed. Let me settle it this way and I'm done. We're on the same team. Working for the same Lord in the same salvation. To glorify him, striving together to make a difference for Jesus Christ in our part of the vineyard in southwest Ohio. But all of that is only possible because of the shared sacrifice of Jesus Christ.